Welcome to Podshot, everyone. I'm Seb, um, and I'm joined by Loken. Loken, how are you this good fine afternoon? I'm good. Uh, I've spent a lot of time not thinking about Arsenal, which is also good. Um, but I'm I'm keen and, and ready to to get back on the wagon. It's basically the only thing you could do after the last month or so. So I think the break has been therapeutic, to say the least. Um, before we get into the game, let's uh, let's go with the potshot question first. Um, the lazy person that I am, I just took one of Alex's tweet a few weeks ago where he asked people to come up with potshot questions for us. And considering FCON's going on at the moment, Chuck Boiler had asked the question, the rest of the members need to convince you on why their FCON 5 aside team is the best. One goalkeeper, two defenders, and two attackers. It doesn't need to be the best team, they just need to convince you that it is the best. Now, neither Lorcan nor I have been caught up in FCON action much, but there's multiple players that we, we can pick from here, considering um, FCON has a, a great deal of talent in it. Uh, so, Lorcan, why would you just give us your off-the-cuff FCON 5 aside? Okay, so this is, I think, off-the-cuff is the right way of putting in it, because I've not heard this... Um, Potshot question before you said it. So I've just quickly schemed the groups. I've, uh, yeah, as I was saying to you before the pod, I'm embarrassingly out of touch with all things football at the minute, including AFCON. Um, so I'm going to, I, I heard the stipulation with the whole two defenders, two attackers. I'm going to throw that out the window because that makes my job harder. Um, okay. I'm going to pick Unahi. Um, Ianacho good tight space players as well as Mares, Diamonde as the the outright center back um good in tight spaces as well as as physically imposing um as far as goalkeepers go oh god we'll go onana of course onana mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Onana's the obvious pick for a five-a-side, considering he basically wants to be an outfielder playing in goal. <laughs> Entertainment value. Yeah. I, I would go Onana as well. I'm slightly more biased towards the German, uh, the, the Bundesliga AFCON players. I'd go Tapsoba as a central defender. Also very good in tight spaces. Um, really good player. Uh, I'd go, Mares and Fares Shaibi. Shaibi? Shaibi. Um, who plays for Frankfurt, obviously. Um, as two central def- midfielders and Omar Mamouche, the rising star of Egypt and the one saving them at the moment with Salah out. Also a Frankfurt stalwart as my center forward. A really tricky attacking team full of quality and full of chaos, which is basically what I wanted to see. I'm going to give the win to you on this one. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, now we have that aside, um, let's just quickly get into a game summary before speaking about the game itself. It's been three weeks since Arsenal's last league game, two weeks since their last game of football in general, and over a month since our last win. Christ. Talk of poor finishing and subpar settled play had dominated online discourse with general morale fairly low. Arsenal turned all that on its head, though, on Saturday with a 5-0 thrashing of Palace. Gabriel Magalesh opened the scoring 
with 11th and 37th minute headers at the back post, continuing, continuing Arsenal's staggering set-piece dominance. Leandro Trossard added a third on the 59th minute, a transition started by Raya after a Palace corner, before substitute Martinelli scored two in quick succession right at the end of the game, one a mirror image of the other. Goals galore and two points off top. Are Arsenal back again? I think that's the, the opening question for the discussion in general. Um, we scored five goals. We've been underperforming our expected goals massively over the last month or so. Uh, a lot of that, as we discussed, is probably down to one, the general profligacy of our attackers, as well as some issues in, in subtle play. Now we've scored five goals, so are those issues gone? And I think to, to sort of summarize this, has anything substantially changed from the last time we saw Arsenal? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's definitely the place to start. Um, it was a, a question advanced by Michael as well in the comments. Um, just to summarize, was the win a result of improved attacking dynamics or did we just inevitably overperform our expected goals? because we've been variancing down um, between quotation marks recently. Um, which To which I'd say, I don't think there's anything inevitable about scoring goals um, and sort of ma macro statistical takes like that um, will inevitably get up over um, back to the mean. In terms of causality, don't really account for obviously why we score goals. Um, that's a bit of a fallacy, obviously. But seen... I think Manas made the point before, seen um, in the long durée, it's perhaps unsurprising that we've we've gone back. We started the season overperforming expected goals. We had a big period underperforming it, um, and we now seem to have corrected it a little bit. Um, to answer the question a bit more specifically, um, I think there is a qualitative difference in terms of the types of chances that we've created um, that's useful for context. Uh, in the, the West, we were talking about this in the chat, but in, in the West Ham game, for example, we, I think we had 30 shots, none which were particularly high XG. So it was a low XG per shot. Two or three good right. chances in there. Yeah, you're right, actually, that yeah. there were, um, two, so 40% of the goals were set pieces to get that out of the way. I think that's a consistent theme that we'll talk about later. And that, that kind of checks out with the other games this season. Um, and I think it's fair to say the remaining three were transition situations, either sort of micro transition as a result of the game state, particularly for those Martinelli goals or the Raya one that you, you referenced in the game summary. Um, so I would say that there are in settled play, our attacking dynamics were, there were some nuances there that, that aided, um, our general threat, but the goals themselves kind of emerged out of those qualitative differences that I think are worth noting upon um, when we're talking about Arsenal's chance creation and quality of chances in general. Um, I think the transition situations, the deep, our deep build-up worked really well. Um, kind of for the Martinelli goals, but those were more game state tacks. I think it's fair to say 95th, 96th minute or 94th, 95th, um, if we're being honest. Um, but yeah, in, in general, it kind of actually reminded me a bit of the Bournemouth game. Um, from a deep build-up perspective, we had 
one or two more men, depending on the situation, and were therefore able to generate those those transition situations. Um, but to, yeah, to, to answer the question, I would say this isn't us so much reverting back to type, um, or, or it is, but there's useful context for that in terms of the quality of chances and how we've created it, how we've exploited the opposition. I don't know what you'd say. I, th I think answering the question of reverting back to type is one that's almost impossible to answer because what is type, right? Every game has its own intricacies and its own flow. And as opposed to the West Ham game, when a very, very dodgy goal completely sent game state in the other direction and led to West Ham being so comfortable defending deep, we scored after 11 minutes from a corner and yet still weren't really able to create much significant chances, especially in the first half. Scoring a second set-piece goal and then giving Palace, who were who are in general in a bit of a bad situation, wanting to, to, to reverse their rut and sort of Roy Hodgson hanging on by a thread, they would they obviously become more desperate to to attack and to leave spaces that we then are able to exploit so it's rather for me at least a story of a single game and the sort of intricacies that come with that as opposed to a significant change in our attacking dynamics even though i think there were a few noticeable differences in how we played and i think we should come on to those uh, momentarily but before we do that, um, seeing as we just did a set-piece part, I, I'd feel remiss to just glaze upon those two two goals and just say, yeah, set-pieces are good. Uh, and go into those a bit more detail, especially considering you, Logan, uh, have just put out a thread on our Potshot account, sort of summarizing the first set-piece goal and giving a nice analogy with the Ali Oop in basketball. So if you would just get into that a little bit. Yeah, of course. Um, I think we've also from the from the potshot account we've also retweeted um, one of Jake's tweets. That's Jake W Fox um, on Twitter, who was on that um, podcast who, that was really good um, last week that we put out with Alex. Um, and one of the things he mentioned on that thread, because I did skim read it before the podcast, was that the players commented on the fact that we've been working on a lot of set pieces in Dubai, um, even with the success that we've had this season. Um, and, and some of the, the players mentioning that the regret of, of going out, um, partly due to a set piece goal that we conceded against Liverpool. Um, but yeah, so both of these goals came from attacking the back post with Gabriel. And that stood out to me immediately because, um, as you, you know, fans have probably seen them was noted, um, in the last podcast by Jake, as well as Alex. Um, we've targeted the front post more. And that's likely because of preoccupations with control. You can try and get to that first ball. And if you don't get to the first ball, it goes immediately out and you're not as susceptible to conceding a transition situation. So, um, yeah, these, these two goals, which, um, both scored by Gabriel, this known goal, one of them, um, had Gabriel and, and Havert starting from deeper positions to attack that vacated back post area. Um, which is obviously the blind side. And even apart from the goal, I counted in the, in the 21st minute with Gabriel, 40th minute, a chance which fell to Zinchenko and 57th minute with a chance that fell to Havertz. We looked to get to that back post 
um, again, particularly in the first half, but sometimes in the second as well. Um, and then in the in the it was in the second half that we sort of targeted the front post a little bit more, which if we think of it in terms of control and conceding transitions and that risk reward, kind of does make sense in, in the in the context of game state. Um, but yeah, I, I think one of the things that stood out to me was that ability f- that we have to switch it up. Um, we can be proactive um, in terms of picking whether we want to go front post or back post and reactive in, in the context of the game state, um, which is pretty impressive. Um, and also, yeah, this yeah particularly makes me think of Owen's question, which was about whether or not it's a quote-unquote problem that we rely on set-piece goals. I think given that we've been so consistent, um, Owen notes, but I, I think that consistency combined with the fact that we have that ability to mix and match and can almost vary the types of deliveries, um, which all seem to be in-swingers, it's, it's worth pointing out. Um, I, yeah, I wouldn't say it's a problem so much as, you know, you might think. Um, but yeah, that's... A, a brief synopsis. Um, it's also, I think, worth pointing out that we've conceded the lowest expected goals conceded from corners in the league, which I would imagine is as much to do with corner prevention as it is defending the box well. Yeah, another stat is also that we conceded the least corners in the league as well, so I think that goes a right. long way in conceding go. the least expected goals from corners. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's we are pretty monstrous from from set pieces at the minute and it seems to me as a as a casual viewer um who doesn't really know set pieces too well that it looks to be sustainable <laughs> yeah I, th- I think the the set pieces in and of itself are sustainable especially considering the sheer height we have in the team if you consider saliba gabriel kai Havertz, uh declan rice all over six foot one um that's a mightily impressive set of players to attack and defense at pieces. Um, I think the interesting thing with the question that Owen put in the chat, which was, uh, is being reliant on set pieces for goals scoring uh, really an issue? It's been sustainable over a long period now, and by creating opposition territory, we create more, we win more corners. I think that's a fair point to make in that um, one of the things Saka mentioned from the excerpts I've seen on Jake's uh, thread regarding set pieces was that by dominating territory as much and facing so many opposition low blocks, you are just going to create more corner situations for yourself. And so maximizing those is completely in line with maximizing your attacking potential. And the set pieces in and of itself are, in my opinion, quite sustainable. The issue here is that that should not come as a... uh, that should not deter from a reasonable attacking output from open play. Because if we look back at the games we played before, if you are that reliant on set-piece goals, you sort of live and die by that. And you're going to have situations like West Ham where you're facing a physically as imposing team that is going to shut up shop in open play and leave you to create chances from corner situations and crosses into the box. And if you don't have the attacking dynamics to solve those issues, you're just going to drop points. So as much as being a great set-piece team is a benefit, it can't be the sole primary focus of attacking play in the team. And 
sort of not solving the issues we have otherwise is going to cost points more often than not. So th that's sort of where, where I stand on on that. I, I think a good maybe example for that, um, for me that jumps to mind, is the United game where Martinelli didn't have much success 1v1 versus Wambasaka and didn't really have anyone on that side to help him. Wambasaka particularly helpful at, at defending him. Um, but Martinelli was, was responsible for generating like six, seven corners because he got to the byline and was tackled by, was unable to get past Wampasaka and those corners. And then ultimately we, we won the game with a corner, um, Declan, which Declan Rice scored. So it, it's a funny example of, and I think, um, in the set piece article by Jake, he talked about, or at least in the podcast, he talked about that willingness almost to dribble byline almost aimlessly just because the threat of of getting that corner because if if the defender puts a foot in so there are those sort of um nuances with regard to intent because we know we're so um dangerous from from set pieces the other one would be i guess someone might say having kai havertz in the team is a almost a, a quid pro quo with being dangerous in the air from set pieces and at the back post and stuff and the trade-off is not getting the same maybe value on the floor and possession in the in the small spaces, um, which is a larger question. But I think we can, from this conversation, I think we can conclude that our, the set-piece dominance is sustainable, is probably here to stay. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's ample chat about set-pieces and things that before a week ago we weren't as intensive on, but that's the benefit of of this exercise that even now we're still learning new things about the game and about Arsenal in set-piece situations, for example. But to get back to open play and the game itself, because 98% of the game was not set-pieces, um, we did play some football. And I think there were some noticeable differences in the general outlook of the team as opposed to the last few games. Uh, something that particularly stood out was a, a even bigger disregard for fixity in attacking positions. A lot of player movement within sort of predefined positions for each player to move into, but a sort of lack of fixed players within those positions. Um, that led to some really interesting combinations on the left hand side with Kai Havertz moving out, uh, Leandro Trossard moving in, Gabriel Jesus dropping back a bit. Um, yeah, could you just expand a bit on that and sort of how we changed and how that sort of affected our game? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll start with deep build up because I think that is the, the best place to start. Um, Palace sort of had this hybrid block thingy, um, which is a 5 4 1 therefore committing sort of five players in the press, but didn't want to give up um, the numerical superiority in the back line for, for obvious reasons. Um, and with Raya, who is sort of a situational centre-back, a wide first line, and then one of, if not both sometimes, um, Havertz and Odegaard, particularly Odegaard, dropping, we outnumbered them in that, in that phase of play. And we've seen on, on multiple occasions that we've been successful. That's why it kind of reminded me of the Bournemouth game, that 7v5 in the first phase. Um, Zinchenko inverting as well caused some issues for Palace because they 
obviously with two, one or two less players in that phase, they didn't want to go man to man because that's extremely exploitable. Um, so we're kind of jockeying between one or two players when Zinchenko or would invert or Odegaard would drop. Um, and Odegaard, as Odegaard does, made use of those passing lanes that emerged from that sort of indecision from those Palace players. And I think he was really good at uh, exploiting that. Um, funnily enough, I think Havertz was as well. Pretty good connectivity dropping in, um, in that sort of micro transition phase, connecting to those wingers. Um, it kind of reminded me of his performances at, at centre forward, um, in terms of how he dropped with so many players further back. There was a noticeable difference as well in how much freedom he had to move, not just within the left side, but also dropping to the right hand side and Udegaard getting into positions that looked almost Sinchenko y. Yeah. Which I think replicates like a, almost like a 4 2 3 1, where he's the sort of that Deserby 10 who gets the license to roam vertically, horizontally. And I think that's ultimately a position, uh, a role that he's very good at. Um, it, it gets him out of second phase responsibilities as well, which we know he's not particularly good at. Um, and he can replicate that sort of second striker role. So I was, I was a really big fan of that. I think it was as much to do with exploiting Palace as it was to do with us in general, which is worth pointing out. Um, but it did facilitate some nice rotations that you talked about. Um, and yes, got, um, Erdegaard away from Saka, got Havertz away from Trossard so he could actually play those, those balls in behind, um, to Trossard and also with, with Jesus and Saka on the other side, kind of minimal width principles, which I really liked as well. Um, that, yeah, I, I thought we were really good um, in general. Yeah, I, I think a lot of that goes back to what we discussed a few weeks ago in that the biggest aim here is to sort of maximize the players we have at our disposal. And you maximize Kai Havertz by getting him away from those second-phase responsibilities, getting him higher up the pitch, giving him some license to roam and to connect with the wide players, connect with the center forward, interchange and offer up that sort of rotation piece to those other players to get those uh, to get them more involved as well as Odegaard who you maximize in my opinion at least by getting him on the ball as much as possible in deeper areas to sort of conduct play from there and then move up the pitch um, I think another player who sort of had one of their best games in an Arsenal shirt was David Araya um, very good in the game uh, the throw out that led to the Trossard goal is probably the thing that stood out most. But I think his on-ball contribution was noticeable even outside of that. Um, funny statistical quirk is that he had 71% pass completion, 20 out of 28. He usually floats about 40-50% considering the amount of long balls he usually punts forward, which isn't a negative considering the main aim of that is to get second ball uh, contestions in. Um, but I think he was really good also in just sweeping and averting danger before it leads to a, a an opposition shot. He had that one pass in the first half that led to a shot that he saved. But overall, a pretty, pretty uh, important contribution and probably sort of a sign of why he is in the team, isn't it? I think his, his on-ball ability has always been highlighted, but he's never been used as that sort of short pass keeper um, at Brentford just because they don't really play out the back. Um, so that's something he's had to adapt to, just being a higher volume on the ball, acting as a centre-back. And, and for me, that's something he's really got to grips with in the past four, five, six games. 
um, I've been really um, sort of quite impressed with the strides he's made, kind of expectable ones given his quality on the ball. Um, but it's nevertheless an adaptation that he's had to an adaptation that he's had to make. Um, so yeah, I think Raya had had a brilliant game. And uh, yeah, just to follow up on the, on the on the point that you made about sort of profiling players, it also absolves Rice from being too much of that um, build up conductor. We know his limitations. He um, how, how he's not sort of the single pivot that Rodri is in, in receiving inside of the block, and sort of switching up first receivers between Rice and Chenko, Odegaard. Um, does make him look better, I think. Um, lessens his responsibilities in in that phase of play, which I I think is is a good way of um, of managing the team. Yeah, I agree. I th- I think what what stands out with Rice is how effective his passing is once he faces forward and sort of gets on the ball from there, but. Yeah, absolving him from those back-to-goal situations as much as possible by also getting not sort of sacrificing the stability of the, the structure itself is something that works quite well with David Raya. <clears throat> and while we're on the topic of sort of maximizing players, um, I just wanted to quickly touch on Leandro Schosser, who started here. I think a generally good performance from him also benefited by the fact that we didn't keep our wingers as wide as we normally do, and he had more license to get inside and rotate with Havertz and with Jesus. Um, but I think what gets lost in uh, Trosser discussion a bit, in my opinion, is part of the reason a lot of us don't see him as an exterior player and more of an interior player isn't just his sort of ineffectivity in 1v1s out wide and that sort of lack of burst, but also just that positioning, ridding him of getting into shooting positions more. And that goal he scored is probably a good example of him being one of our best finishers in the team. Definitely. Yeah. I think um, I'm, you know, in, in a vacuum out wide is not where I, I want to see Trossard. But I think it does work um, in, in particular situations. And I, for example, I didn't have a, tr- um, a problem with him coming on um, for Martinelli in that Liverpool game. And one of the reasons I didn't was because he sort of was that defeat outlet who could control um, sort of the pace of play when we tried to, to hoof it out. Um, and it's where he sort of he functions as a quasi interior from out wide. And I think that's because of who he's got next to him, who is Havertz. Um, we're we're much we're much more able to stagger the positions of of Havertz and Trossard when they play together. Um, and we'll we'll come on to Smith Rowe um, later. But I think as much as individual performances are are being analysed at the minute and who's right for which role, for me, in the absence of a the pure like starter there. It's more to do with who you're pairing them with. And I think it was quite telling that Martinelli um, came, oh, sorry, Trossard came off at the same time that Havertz came off, such that we didn't see Havertz and Martinelli play together. So for me, Trossard is, is, is fine out wide with Havertz as that interior, because you have the balance of the sort of the small spaces, defeat, runner, um, in Havertz being the runner. And then the other way around with, with Smith Rowe, or maybe even Trossard interior. And then Martinelli out wide, but 
it, it's a dynamic that I think worked really well on Saturday. Obviously, we've seen it work less well in other games. Um, but we had that sort of staggering of positions that you talked about with Havertz coming out of left wing, Havertz being the, the centre forward with Jesus out of left wing. We saw a couple of deep runs from Havertz that were almost successful on that account. So, yeah, I, I think it's in a vacuum. It's something we don't really like to see. We want to see Nelson there. Um, but it does work in particular situations, definitely. Yeah. Uh, while we're on sort of individual discussions, um, just a general question of what, what did you make of Jesus this game? I thought he was good. Um, particularly good in the first half because we tried the, the deep build-up stuff. Sometimes it didn't work out, so we had to go long. And he was that kind of pest outlet. Um, you know, so compact and strong, he is able to hold up the ball as a traditional nine kind of would which you can't really say about many false nines. Um, so I thought he was good. A bit sloppy, um, maybe. I, I know the I was watching with the commentary on and they talked about him being offside quite a bit. So timings of runs, fair enough. But I think he, yeah, I thought he's, I thought he's pretty good. Yeah, I think within the general sort of non-fixedness of our attacking players, he's one of those guys that just benefits from that being able to associate with other players and sort of create dynamism that way. He created two big chances, four key passes, got off three shots, four dribbles. It's, it's just a very good and effective performance for him um, within the general confines of the game. So I think we're putting in a break now. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue with discussion of the game and the changes that led to more goals. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed that sweet, jazzy jingle. We certainly did, and we enjoyed a few of those performances we saw on Saturday. Um, I think one of the interesting things, and we touched about, upon it a little bit, was the relationship between the left eight and the left wingers, and the fact we used two different typecasts of those roles in the game. Before we come on to the changes we made, I just wanted to touch upon Havertz a little bit. Um, Reaction was a bit mixed on his performance. I thought he was quite positive, and I think you did too. Um, what specifically stood out to you uh, for Havertz this game? I thought he was fine. Like some of the things we we've already mentioned, um, almost him playing as that that second striker with Erdegaard being able to come deeper, kind of being that second pivot almost, um, having the what is almost looks like a four-two-three-one shape. Um, so he gets licensed to, to roam in that area, connecting attacks. I think he's much better able to do that from the 10, so to speak, compared to the 8. Um, but yeah, I thought his connected play was extremely basic because of that. Um, and that's just how we like it when, when watching Havertz. Whenever he has to take too many touches, set his feet, I think he can be guilty of slowing down attacks. Um, and as we said before, there's that Jesus Havertz Trossard triangle did work. But yeah, I, I think it, it goes back to who you have next to him. I my, my personal preference is not to have a profile of that kind as an interior. Um, but football's not about positions. It's about roles and dynamics. And that's got to do with who you pair them with. And it, with this particular pairing, his, his on-ball responsibility is lessened because of Trossard and because of Jesus, who are two players who are very good, um, the ball at their feet. 
So in that vein, I think Havertz played fine. Um, you know, on another day, maybe he gets on the end of one of those corners, which we're obviously targeting both him and Gabriel, particularly in the first half, those runs from deep. Um, in which case you say, yeah, he, you know, um, scored a goal, played well. But yeah, I, I thought his basic performance um, did everything you, he would have been asked to do. Had the usual thing in in defence, which we're obviously not mentioning too much because they didn't trouble us, but he, he's that lane-blocking option. Um, his defensive utility is probably overlooked when talking about left-eight conversations within the squad. But yeah, I, th- I thought he was fine. There's also something interesting with him in that he he's able to lose the ball a bit because his legs just immediately win it, win it back and sort of don't let yeah. the opposition player get out of his sort of zone before him being able to put in a challenge. <clears throat> and he also has this really nice, when he's at the center of the box, swinging it out to the left-hand side, uh, to the right-hand side, getting Saka into one-on-one situations. Just, just a nice pass he's able to pull off. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's safe to say that the conditions he's been put in are better for him and getting him out of second phase responsibility, on ball responsibility in deeper areas, apart from carrying, which he's quite good at, is just beneficial to our play. Um, and that's interesting considering we brought him off and brought on Martinelli and Emil Smith Rowe. Not really a surprise that Martinelli came on the pitch, more of a surprise that Emil Smith Rowe got over 20 minutes of football for Arsenal Football Club in 2024. And I think did very, very well. I, I think we've seen a sharpness to him in that game that we've been sort of lacking for quite a while. Yeah, I think he looked um, he looked quite sharp against West Ham when he came on. Obviously, we were like already 2-0 down at that point. Um, just a quick reference to... Winterburn Wanderers question who talks about bench utilization whether we've worked out a blueprint for bench utilization um, I touched on it before but I thought it was hopefully quite telling um, and but but definitely effective how we brought on Smithrow at the same time as Martinelli um, so the fact that those subs happened at the same time was I think relevant in in how effective Smithrow looked um, he gives you that better utility on the ball we were t- we talked about how this game was particularly transition slash micro transition heavy, um, and I think particularly even at the end of the game with game state and stuff, um, Smith Rowe gives you that ability to receive on the half turn and attack the last line, which we don't really have within the squad amongst midfielders in that position. We have Vieira's the next best at it in sort of driving forward when he receives it on the half turn, but Smith Rowe keeps it in that sort of close radius. Um, and I thought he looked particularly good at, at spreading play from central areas. Um, I'm, you know, again, in a vacuum, I'm not terribly fussed with Smith Rowe as a left eight option. I don't think it's his best position, as it were. I think it's just okay. Um, but as a game state sub, it's one that does make sense. It gets him in central areas and paired with the right winger. I think it can be effective to, to use in particular scenarios. Um, I don't think it answers the, the left central midfielder question. Um, and I'm just going to say I, I think Arteta will still sort of if we if we don't get a central it's that second central midfielder next to Rice, I think he will prefer Havertz is there just because of his sort of defensive utility as well as 
potential ability to exploit marginal gains in the air and stuff. But I think it's it's a great game state sub, and I think he does warrant starts. Um, I would say in maybe mm. like the FA Cup, but we've just gone out of that. Um, but yeah, a very positive influence. I don't know if you remarked on anything in particular about his performance. I, th- I think one of the things that stood out to me, as opposed to the West Ham game, which you mentioned, is since the injuries, he seemed a bit risk-averse and sort of more focused on retention, more focused on getting play taking over again and not going into those driving runs, driving at the fences and sort of those pass-and-move situations he's just known for. And once he came off the bench against Palace, he had three or four situations where he just immediately got on the ball, gave it to another person, ran into the box and created danger there. Could have probably had a shot that probably could have went on goal. Um, there was just more attacking impetus in his game generally, as opposed to what we've seen before. And I think the reporting that he sort of refocused himself and sort of really pushed himself and pushed the team in Dubai is is a positive indicator for him. We had the the rumors about a potential move to West Ham. I think it it'd be wise to keep him around and sort of build him up as another option. Uh either to start games in certain in certain game states or just get him off the bench and affect games that way. Um the flip side of that no, sorry. Before we come on to the other part of the substitution, uh, you mentioned the left eight as a general, still a general thing and something that hasn't quite been solved. I suppose the only question I have within that is, considering we've seen this sort of double pivot at points, situational double pivot in Palace with Martin Odegaard, but as well uh, against Liverpool, where Jorginho take, took on that role, do you think the predestined player we probably sign at some point in the future is someone who sort of fills that Jorginho qualities as a sort of second pivot next to Rice or someone that is just an out-and-out interior as it were yeah the former I think Mm -hmm. the the Jorginho performance against Liverpool in the FA Cup kind of spelled what that role will be about we've kind of seen Rice do it next to Partey which I think Arteta is kind of banking on in the second half of the season, the party gets fit and, and Rice is, is that um, stopgap central midfield option. Um, but yeah, it, it makes sense when you look at sort of the names we've been linked with as well in the past, um, going way back, but Bruno Guimaraes, um, Douglas Louise, Zubimendi, exactly. Those sort of second pivot guys um, who can fill in... Um, neither sort of a single pivot or an eight, but more of that double six, um, which I think uh, kind of goes into the trend of, of midfields coming, becoming a bit more hybridy. Um, it also gives us the ability to unleash rice from the single, the so-called single pivot position where one can slot in for him and suddenly he has the license and freedom to, to kind of roam forward on the dribble, which we almost saw this game. Um, there was one particular scenario, but it, it got cut out. But we've seen it in the past, and that's obviously one of his main strengths, carrying the ball. 
So on, on that front, I think it's more of a, a a second six that we're looking to pair with Rice, um, which is ultimately a dynamic, which I think we will see um, with Partey in the second half of this season. Obviously, for non-footballing reasons, it's something we're not really keen on, but I think for stylistic reasons, I think it's something Arteta probably wants. Yeah, I, I still have reservations about them two as a pairing. Um, just on ball, getting parties risk, na- risky nature on the ball into the team again. It's just something I'm a bit skeptical on. But I think another thing we could mention on quickly is the Jorginho cameo as well. Um, Jorginho has been proving to be a really, really important member of the squad, in starting games, coming off the bench, and providing something we don't usually have in our midfielders, which is just that natural appreciation of pass selection. Um, he came on and recorded nine progressive passes in 21 minutes on the pitch, which is, quite frankly, remarkable. Um, and especially in games where Zinchenko isn't available, having him as another option is incredibly valuable to have. Especially also considering he's a second coach as well, on the pitch and off the pitch. <laughs> I think it was a Liverpool game where I saw him. No, it wasn't. Some game where he was on the sidelines, warming up, and just took moments out of his warm up to instruct his teammates on the pitch. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm so thankful to have him in the team. Um, I think he gets. To be fair, um, my the people who I'm following on Twitter do love him. Um, but I've seen, I, I think as a whole, he gets a lot of hate um, online for for reasons that I don't think are warranted. Um, like you said, he, he led us in progressive passes despite only being on the pitch for however long it was. Um, and I think that's kind of an understated part of his game. Um, and I'd, I'd, I think I tweeted about this. I'd include Odegaard in this, but I think both he, Odegaard, and then we have other players who we typically talk about, like Vieira, obviously Partey, and to a lesser extent, Kivior, who can act as those deeper creators because of their ball-striking capacity. Um, and I think it, it's a risk you take when you ask Jorginho. A lot of it was game-state emergent, um, perhaps, in, in this particular game. But I think you, you, you do... It is quite risky to ask him to make those progressive passes off the bat because it invites a more transition-heavy game and you don't want him defending space. Um, but he, he, I think his judgment of when to do them is really good. Um, and he obviously got that assist for Martinelli's second goal. Um, and we've seen, yeah, we've, we've seen him do it before. And I think it's a trend. We'll see a, a t- hopefully a tiny bit more in the second half of the season, sort of deep creation. Um, to launch these transitions, and he's certainly an app profile to to launch them. Yeah, to to finish this off real quick, um, the one we haven't mentioned yet is Martinelli, and his two almost identical goals he scored at the end of the game. He's been sort of leveled, he had criticism leveled at him for his mixed performances and lack of output over the last month, two months. Um, so him coming on and scoring two goals is obviously a positive. Is there much you can you think you can take from him scoring those two goals? I suppose obviously game state. Um, but we've seen those 
trademark finishes of his almost Henri like before. Um, and I think it's all about, which we've talked about frequently on the podcast, about getting him in those situations where he can be dangerous, i.e. close to the goal to get shots off. And he hasn't had enough of those as a whole this season, but there has been a notable uptick in, in the amount of shots that he's um, been shooting uh, in, in the past sort of month, month and a half or so. So that's a good sign. Um, aside from game state, I would say um, it was quite similar to the Havertz goal against Brighton. And that makes sense for me because they're both runners. Um, so for me, sort of them not playing together on the same side, you know, if, if Havertz starting striker fair, but um, is the way to go moving forwards. I, I don't think you get the best out of both of them by playing them together. Um, but yeah, I think it's something we need to look to um, exploit um, more and more I think a, a focus on deep build up does help that because you commit more men further back and therefore attackers have more space um, I think there was more scope we didn't see it loads but we saw it two or three times where um, those passes from the full back inside to the wingers so they can access those central areas and they receive facing forwards which is really good um, and we saw Martinelli connecting to the far side with Saka as well as Saka connecting with Martinelli on Martinelli's side, which is really good. But yeah, a really positive substitution. I think the way going forwards is to play him with Smith-Rowe or Rice or Trossard rather than Havertz as, a, as the left eight. Um, but yeah, really good. It's just one of those game-breaking qualities that... So it's that, yeah, it's just whether you can platform his ability to score goals um cheat xg and stuff like that which obviously was happened because of the game state in this game but i think it's something we can exploit by being more transition heavy and pairing him with the right interior going forward yeah i suppose it's all comes back to the fundamental point of quite a while now which is just platforming these players to perform at their best which has been an issue in the first half of the season at points um i think the the caveat i would put on Havertz and Martinelli starting together is it would be a workable solution if you put Havertz out of uh, Martinelli's zones as as it were so if you had him more on the right hand side or the goal perhaps or someone else more on the left hand side and work it that way it's, it's just those two as a complementary pairing just isn't as complementary as the name would suggest um it 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 was just genuinely nice to see him running beyond defenders and having the space and time to open up his body to shoot from there, which is just something he hasn't had the luxury of doing as much this season. Even if he gets into more central positions, the way teams play against us now means there's a lot less time and space to set yourself. So it either results in rushed actions or, as we've seen a lot over the last few games, was... Uh, dribbling on the outside and getting those sort of far post curlers high up um, from him, and he he just excels when when getting into those transition moments and having the space and time to open up his body and decide where he wants to place the ball. He's just a very good finisher. I I, I probably think Trossard is slightly ahead of him on pure variety of finishing and quality. Variety, definitely, I think. Although, to be fair, Martinelli's got heading ability that we just don't really see 
from out wide. That's that's very true. Yeah, that's that's very fair. So I think a large part of getting better at open play chance creation is also just getting our better finishers into better finishing positions. Um, considering the players we get in those positions most are 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 historic XG underperformance in Harvards and Jesus. Um, yeah. I think we can leave it here. Um, I think that was a worthwhile discussion. Uh, yeah, sorry. Just a quick shout out. Um, I suspected that we wouldn't speak about him because he doesn't really fit into the running order, but Ben White, I think, was really good. He struggled recently with sort of being overplayed, um, kind of these little niggles and injuries, but I, he looked back to his best or certainly close to it from a fitness perspective. Um, I think the whole Erdegaard dynamic worked really well with him feeding Saka between the lines a couple of times. Um, his retention was really good and handled Eze pretty well when Eze tried to go on the outside um, and and stuck with him, actually. Um, even when Eze came inside, it was Saka who sort of filled in out right back. So shout out to Ben White. I think, I think we can leave it here. Um, I think there was a worthwhile discussion on the Palace game. Considering our next Premier League match is on Tuesday, uh, we haven't yet really figured out how we are going to schedule the pod, considering that's the day we usually uh, upload. But you will soon find out from us on Twitter, which is a nice segue. You can follow us on Twitter, at PodShotPod. You can follow each member of the PodShot crew in the links in the description of this podcast. If you like this podcast, you can rate, review, and share the podcast. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, the music is made by James Blake. You can follow him on Spotify at James W. Blake. That's all. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>